And the interesting thing about Vermont, and part of the reason why Vermont has the culture that it has, is because everything is town-based. The town identity is you know, really, really strong here. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about places you love in the Green Mountain State. I'm Erica Housekeeper. Have you ever wondered why towns have specific names attached to them, like Center, Falls, Mills, or Ville? If you've spent some time in Vermont, you've come across places like Waterbury Center, Enosburg Falls, Cookville, or Post Mills. Or on your travels, you've been to places with East or West or North names, like East Charlotte, North Ferrisburg, or West Newbury. And have you ever noticed when looking at a map of Vermont that some towns are shaped like a square, some are diamond-shaped, while others have town lines that zigzag left, right, up, or down? And maybe you've asked, why is that? Jane Dorney of Richmond is a geographer who helps people connect to the Vermont landscape and understand how it came to be the incredible place that it is. She approaches the Vermont landscape with a geographer's question, why are things where they are? Jane researches and analyzes Vermont's natural and cultural features through project-based consulting work. She looks for patterns and interconnections on the land and tries to understand how it has all evolved. I met with Jane outside the Richmond Library on a chilly day in November to discuss settlement patterns, maps, town centers, villages, and mill sites. Here's Jane. The way Vermont was settled, settled from southern New England primarily, in the 1700s, the towns were laid out in sort of a sequence. They started in the south, mostly along the western border of Vermont that goes north-south, and then along the Connecticut River. And they set up towns to be six miles by six miles in size. And that was something they learned in southern New England. So the advantage of Vermont being settled a little bit later is that they learned from some things. And so some of the towns in southern New England, if they were bigger than six miles by six miles, what they found was that they sort of broke down into smaller pieces, functional pieces, because the towns were too big. If you were on horses only, that was the only kind of transportation other than walking. If it was farther to get into the center of the village and back to your farm, farther than that six mile by six mile town would allow, then it just didn't work. And so when they came to Vermont, they said, okay, you know what? What's functional, what really works is six miles by six miles. That's what we're going to do. So they started out setting up the town six miles by six miles. And usually there's a, you know, several rows of them away from the border and from the Connecticut River. But what happened is they stayed away from the mountain areas at first. But if you look at the state of Vermont, the Connecticut River Valley does not straight north-south. The western border is more or less straight south. The eastern border bends to the east, right? So what happens is if you put these squares along the Connecticut River and then the river sort of bends to the east, then they still kept the town shape to match the edge of the river, but then they started to be sort of diamond shaped. <laughs> and so they were working with the natural landscape. So they had this general, this basic abstract idea, I guess you could call it, but then it also was, was being, they evolved with the natural landscape as well. So the six miles, six miles was extremely functional, very practical on the one hand. On the other hand, it was very abstract idea. 
right? You drew these lines in the middle of a forested landscape that were six miles by six miles in size. And the idea, too, usually written into the original documents of the towns was to establish a center village where the town hall would be or all the town functions would be held there. The church would be there. The town hall eventually, the town meetings were usually held in the churches or in houses in the early years. And then the greens, some of the, you know, the early, the early, early town records, they'll intentionally build a green, establish a green in the center village. So it was that place where everybody could get to there and back every week. If you went to church, all of the functions of the town could be done there. So it was that a very community-oriented spatial pattern, if you will. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. If you looked at a map, would the town centers be kind of right in the middle? Usually they were. Usually yeah. they were in the geographical center mm-hmm. because then you could get there from every part of town. There were many towns, some towns, where the topography made that tricky. So the, you know, towns would shift it sometimes. I know in Jericho, the exact geographical center was up on a ridge, a rocky ridge. And so they just moved it. It wasn't too far to the west, but just at the bottom of the big rocky ridge line. And that's where they established the center village, just a little bit off off center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many towns in Vermont, and I don't know if you have a number, but a lot of towns have a center to them. Manchester Center. Yes. Linden Center. Yes. Jericho Center. Yes. The center was put on to the name of the town yeah. to be that center village. Right? Does that still exist? Yes. Oh, yes. But I mean, I know it exists in places, but were there some places where it used to be a center? Was there a Richmond center at one point? Richmond never used the word center. Okay. Some towns did and some towns didn't. Most towns did. Most towns did, but Richmond did not. Richmond was actually, I don't know if you want to get into the story or not, but Richmond was actually made out of parts of several other towns. So it started a little bit later, okay. if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, sure. So some of the early n- naming patterns are a little different because of that. Okay. And then the six by six, can you talk a little bit about maybe how that evolved in some towns or if it if the boundaries changed? Oh, or... yes. Yeah, so of course it did. So one of the greatest examples is <laughs> the town of Mansfield. The town of Mansfield was a roughly six-mile-by-six-mile six town east of Underhill and west of Stowe. And if you know anything about the topography of northern Vermont, you know that that's where Mount Mansfield is, the highest mountain in Vermont. So the town of Mansfield, again, you're just drawing these, you have a map. The colonial governor in New Hampshire had a map on the desk, and they were just drawing, literally drawing lines with a ruler, right? Okay. So that town happened to be half of it on one side of Mount Mansfield and kind of half on the other side of Mount Mansfield. So if you think about that for a minute, if you're going to try to get someone to buy a piece of property... And you're telling them that the people in their town, so the center of your village is going to be at the top of Mount Mansfield? Right. Right. But how much snow, how yeah. many months of the year? That's a problem. Okay. And then the people who live far down one side and down the other, so they have to go up over the top and then down to get to their neighbors. So that was not functional. So they divided it. So right down the ridge line, they gave a piece to Underhill mm-hmm. and a piece to Stowe. And if you look at the maps, so Stowe, is long, fat on the one side. It's like, it looks a little lopsided. And the center of the village, or the original Stowe village, is in the center of the original Stowe. And they just, there's this appended piece. So if you don't understand that story, it's bigger than six miles by six miles. Yes. It's got that, whatever, two or three miles added on. Right. And Underhill is the same way. 
And the same thing happened the next town or two, several towns like that along there. There was a town, Steerling, wasn't there? Yes. Yes. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing happened. They kind of get so absorbed. Cambridge, Johnson, Morristown, I think. They all got pieces of that yeah. added on to their town. Yeah. It's funny, too, because so, I, I recently heard about, was reading about the former towns of Mansfield and Steerling. And, you know, those names are so well-known in Vermont, you know, Mount Mansfield and Steerling Forest and all of that, but that they were actual towns is, actual is interesting. Towns. Yeah, They were actual towns originally, right? Right, right, but right. they weren't practical in the end. They weren't. So they've evolved. And you see that in various places. Cambridge had a little piece added on because of the way the river went through and the village that developed, the mill village that developed, they added that on to adding that little piece on to Cambridge. So there are little places here and there where there were adjustments made to that abstract idea, if you will, of the six mile by six mile town. But overall, if you look at the state of Vermont, the maps of all the towns, you can still see that 18th century pattern laid down. Right. Oh, it's still there. Yeah. Very visible in the landscape still. Absolutely. And then that diamond shape. And the next time I look at a my gazetteer, right. you know, or my map, right. I want to see that. Let's see if I can give you a name of a town. Yeah. So here you are over here, you know, Stratford, Tunbridge. So these along the river here in Norwich, you see how it's not, this western edge of Norwich is not straight north like they would be on the other side of the so it's because the river is here, you see it's parallel to the river. So these end up being sort of diamond shaped, if you see. So Norwich, Sharon, Stratford, Thetford, all of these towns and here in this sort of middle part of the Connecticut Valley. And then as you go up, it gets to be even more so. So they're not 90 degree angles anymore. Right? They're evolving with that pattern. By the time they were dividing up the Midwestern United States, they just had the straight lines yeah. <laughs> <laughs> directly north, south, directly east, west. That was it. No problem. Right. So this is a kind of interesting in-between between southern New England and then what happened out west right. in the United States. In your work as a consultant and as a geographer and when you're out there talking to folks, do most people know about the six-by-six six settlement pattern? No. Oh, absolutely not. They don't. You know, here we call a township a town. Most other places in the United States is called a township. And a town in most other places in the United States is a small city, you know, something between a city and a village, right? That's what a town is. But here a town means a township anywhere else. So, yes, I have to explain that often. People don't have, just don't quite get it. And then when you explain it and you show the map, it help, really helps to look at a map. They go, oh, oh, okay. And the interesting thing about Vermont, and part of the reason why Vermont has the culture that it has is because everything is town-based. So, again, if you go other places, a lot of government has been aggregated into counties. Here, the only functionality at the county level is the court system, right? All the planning commissions, all the road, road all, the, all you know, transportation stuff, all of that's either done at the state level or the town level, pretty much. The town identity is you know, really, really strong here. And that's because of that settlement pattern? It's related to the settlement pattern because the towns were done individually and the county system evolved a lot over time. If you look at the history of any, pick any town in Vermont and you look at the history of like, first it was in this county and then this many years later it'll be this county and this many later it'll be this county. And I don't know the whole story about why Vermont never really gave the counties a lot of power, but they never did. And so the identity with the town here is much stronger 
than most other places. But it's a whole town, a whole township, as you would call it somewhere else. Yeah. That usually has a group identity. Right. Yep. How did the six by six come about? Like, was it modeled on another state? You know, when they were, this is like happening in Vermont. Said, the, you've got, if you, when you had that earlier settlement in Southern New England. Yes. And most of the people who came here were from Southern New England. When they, there were towns there that were set up that were larger than six miles by six miles, they would break down into smaller pieces. So a village would develop on one side and the other side. People couldn't all come to town meeting easily, couldn't all come to church easily, the same one. But church would set up not just in the center village, but somewhere off on one side so everybody who couldn't get to it could now get to it. And so then you'd have two centers if you see what I mean. And so when they saw that pattern, how it just wasn't able to function as a single unit, they wanted towns to function as a single unit. It just wasn't physically possible. It wasn't practical. That's so interesting. Right? And like in Vermont, it's like they, well, they got it really right, didn't they? they? Right, right, right. And here we are, how many centuries later? And it still works. It still works. Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. And, and again, you have this identity with your town here that you don't have most places. Mm. That's really powerful. Yeah, it really is. Really powerful. So there's places like Snowsville and Braintree. There's Stevens Village and Barnet, North Ferrisburg, and Faze Corner right here in yep. Richmond. Talk to me about some of these place names or maybe some of the mills. I mean, they're sort of two different things. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously related. So what you have is almost all towns have a center village. And most of those are Randolph Center. The center will be stuck on to the name of the town. Almost all towns have that or had that. But there are lots of villages in towns that are not the center, right? And almost all of them. There's sort of two other kinds, basic kinds. The main one is old 19th, 18th and 19th century mill villages. And those names, usually they're not in the center of town unless the river goes through the center of town. There are cases where, you know, they joined. And the center village is also the mill village. But in the 19th century, you had, what, 80% of the population was farming. This was a farming landscape. But to be farmers in that era, there were some things, some materials you used or needed that had to be milled to be reasonable. I and mean, you could pound grain by hand. So everybody grew their own wheat to live on through the wintertime. I mean, all year, but especially to survive the cold winter. So there was a grist mill in town. So the farmers who would come down in their wagons, right, could grind their grain. So there was a grist mill and a sawmill usually. Almost all the infrastructure was wood. The very, very earliest people would build a log house. But as soon as they could, they wanted a frame house. They were much warmer, much easier to manage. You could have a floor. The difference between not having a floor and having a floor, which you had to have sawn wood for that, right? So the sawmill was usually built first in the village to build the infrastructure. And the grist mill went in shortly after that. So you could grind your grain and survive. So you had these farming communities that needed these industrial, if you will, although the scale of them was very small. By When you think of a mill village now, you think of something big. But in this era, in the 19th century, in most towns in Vermont, it was very small scale. It was to support the farming communities. Sawmills, gristmills, especially. And that did evolve through time, you know, and as you went into the dairy industry, the railroad came in so you could ship stuff to Boston or New York. Then they started to make cheese boxes so you could ship the cheese and butter tubs so you could ship, you know, so it evolved into 
other kinds of agricultural related products so you could market some stuff regionally. So there are a number of other mills like that. Most towns in Vermont, it was very small scale like that. And so you'd name those little villages, they get names because you're going to go down to the village to get grind your grain. You're going to tell the neighbor you're going down, you wanted me to take anything for you, you know. And either the names were the name of the main miller, Perkinsville, you know, whatever. Sometimes it'd be the name of the town, like Enosburg Falls, right? There's an Enosburg Center, but there's an Enosburg Falls where there was a waterfall, a water power. And so that village got named Enosburg Falls. So sometimes it's the name of the town with falls after it. So you have the miller's name, the falls. A lot of them are just the geographical places. So it'll be east, Enosburg, west Enosburg, you know, north Enosburg. So you'd have, you'd use the directional names in the front. What you put those in front of the town name. So there was a more variety in the names of mill villages than the center villages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the mill village in Richmond? Did they have a mill village? Two. Two. There was Faye's Corners, right, named after the Faye family. And I drive by that house on a regular basis where they lived. And Jonesville, right, <laughs> named after the guy who put the first sawmill in down down there. It's this complicated story with Jonesville that I won't go into all the details of, but it was named after him. He eventually did the, when the stagecoach went through, he built the hotel and everybody remembers him from the hotel, not from the original little sawmill, which ended up being a very small scale. But anyway, so most towns have one center village, but a number of mill villages. And sometimes it's one or two Sometimes it's six or eight. I mean, there are some towns that have an enormous number. If they've got really good water power, you've got to have a drop. You've got to have the topographical change and a volume of water. What about some of the towns that had multiple mill villages? Like, what are some examples of some towns that maybe had that? Yeah, so Bridgewater, Bridgewater Center, of course, but it had Bridgewater Corners. Sometimes it'd be named Corners. West Bridgewater if you look at Enosburg, that was the one I described before, also had one called Gilbert's Tannery, Oh, right? The name of the guy who was the tanner. So there's the gristmill, the sawmill. Probably the next main kind of thing at a mill village would be the tannery, probably. And that was second or third or fourth anyway. And that took the place of, if you were going to use horse transportation, had to have leather for all of the rain to control the animals. You had to have shoes, right? You had to have gloves. You had to have all the things that we now make out of synthetics. You had to have them. So tannery sometimes is actually a name tacked on with the end of a village oh, because wow. the tanneries yeah. were a critical piece of the infrastructure as well. Mm -hmm. Thetford, Thetford Center, East Thetford, Post Mills, Rice's Mills, Campbell Corner, Union Village, that's near the dam, Thetford Hill, the Five Corners. Right? Oh, wow. So that's got all of these you know, you're coming right down into the Connecticut River Valley there. So you've got some topography and you know, there's a drop there. And so you've got water power potential. And that's what happened there. Today, you still hear names like Post Mills, Enersburg Falls. Yep. Is there a way, if someone was interested, how would you identify an old mill village? Mm, wow. That's actually a lot more fun than it sounds, believe it or not. So what you do is you get out your beers atlas. They're all digitized. Yeah. Okay. Beers. Beers. B-E-E-R-S. Uh -huh. They were these large-scale atlases. 
They were done by county by county. You know, these were the 1860s, 18, early 1870s. So you had well-established towns by then. And if you look at these, these maps are large, large scale, right? And you can see all the village names. And if you look very carefully at all the villages, it'll say S mill, sawmill. It'll say G mill, or it might spell it out. It might say grist mill, might say sawmill, but it also might be initial, little initials. So you can actually look at every single house has the owner's name on there and every business is listed. If there's a village that's large, they'll have an inset. So you can read every name, you can read every industry that's there, every small industry that's there. So these are digitized, these are amazing. And I should tell you, they're a little bit addictive for some I people. Bet. <laughs> this is a copy of done in the mid 20th century, this black and white, but the originals are color. Oh, absolutely okay. gorgeous. Oh, I bet. Absolutely gorgeous. So that's what I would do. I look at an old map that has the level of detail of these and you'll get all of the business names and the owner's That's names so and everything neat. else. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now you look at face corners and it's just a few houses because all the mills are gone. You know where to look for the foundation stones. You can usually find them. Not always. Sometimes if it's one of those rivers that just has had enormous flooding, it'll rip all of that infrastructure out. Right. But you look at the old maps and it's all there. It's uh, all there. It's all there. That's so neat. Usually the best place to build a mill, if you can, <laughs> if you don't have any other choice, you can, there's other options, but the best option is someplace where there's like a bedrock channel, steep-sided channel. It's much easier to build the, all the mill infrastructure on those. And those are places, when you're going to build a covered bridge, the best place, if you have the option, is where you've got the stone that comes right up to the edge of the water, right? A little, you know, a little canyon kind of thing. So almost all the mill villages, because they were used by the farmers on a regular basis, you know, you put the mill on one side of the river, you also always want to be able to help the people on the other side. So you're going to have a bridge there. And because it was easy to build a covered bridge, usually in the same places where it was easy to have mills, they're paired incredibly well. But it's also true that not all covered bridges are in mill sites, right? Most mill sites had covered bridges, but not all covered bridges are in mill sites. Because sometimes you have covered bridges in flatter terrain just because you need to get across the river there. Yeah. Can you think of any covered bridges that are standing today that are at former mill sites? Yes. Oh, many. Oh, Can you my name gosh. a few? I just did a project in Charlotte this year. There are two covered bridges in Charlotte, the Sequin Bridge and the, uh-oh, what's the other one's name? I'll think of it. And both of them had mills just upstream of the covered bridges. And again, if you look at the Beers Atlases, you can get the names. You can find the exact locations. You can go to those places. They're both swimming holes, right? So now what ends up happening is oh, those are some of the best places for swimming holes. You know, Vermonters are really good swimming in, in you know, natural rivers. And a lot of the mill villages, mm -hmm. a lot of those sorts have the same the kind of features people like East Middlebury. Unbelievable mill village. Wow. Foundation stones are still there for a lot of the stuff. And that was, you know, big drop out of coming right out of the mountains there, coming down to the Champlain Valley. So the water power potential was incredible. The covered bridge is gone. But the swimming hall, mm. <laughs> they had to build a parking lot for the, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there is a, a nice kind of connection between swimming holes now and a lot of them, not all of them. 
but many can be at will be at old mill village sites. A lot of communities in Vermont they have these place names. Some are it's obvious, you know, Phase Corn and is it Phase Corners or Phase, Phase Corner? Corners? Phase yep. Corners or Snowsville. You know, it was named after a early settler. Yeah. But then there's places like Maple Corner or in Callis or places maybe with a geographical component in the name. There's no rhyme or reason to place names around Vermont. I mean, a lot of it is, sure, it's it's named after a person who lived there or someone who owned a mill. But is there any other insight you could share about Vermont place names? Or I mean, there is a little bit of that, very little of it, though. But there's some for the villages. The mountains tend to have a lot of natural features you know, incorporated in those names. But Milton has Checkerberry Village, which is the center village of Milton. Well, it was. And Milton Falls is really now, what was Milton Falls is now really this taken over. It's where the high school is, where all the buildings are, you know, all that stuff. But Checkerberry Village, so-called, was named after a local shrub that was growing there. It's a, a shrub with little berries, on, you know, and they named it. They wanted to name the village after all these shrubs that had been there. So there is a little bit of that. So there are a few villages named like that, but not, not, not many. many. Usually it's a center, an east, a west, a mills, a Gilbert's tannery, the, you know, that kind of stuff. Is there anything like, is, is there like the first thing you do when you go to a, a town that maybe you've been hired to work for? Like, do you go get out the maps or like, what's like oh, the first yeah. thing well, you do? Of course, well, of like course. Oh, my beer's atlas, of course. I mean, <laughs> really, you know. Because I'm looking at spatial patterns, I'm going to look at the maps out. It depends. If I'm leading a field trip, I not only have to learn the landscape, but I have to find places to go where you can park cars and get out and walk around and, and that kind of stuff, which can be, lead to some really interesting conversations when you're meeting people to try to network to find people who would be interested in being part of that process. But maps, you know, and a lot of historic maps. In Vermont, because you've got so many layers that things have evolved through time, but there are things left from every layer, literally, right? If you look at a map, a state map that shows, even a town map, looks at all the property boundaries, you can still see those patterns of the original lots from the 1700s. They're still there. A lot of them are subdivided, but you can still see that framework. There's all of these layers, pieces of all of those time periods are there and you can learn to read them and it just connects you to what the life was like at those times if you understand those patterns. Does that make, yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Are there a lot of people like you in Vermont? No. Yeah. So you're in high demand, I'm sure. Because I'm a geographer mm-hmm. and I'm looking at those patterns, the repeating patterns, it's a unique way to think about things. But again, very powerful way to connect and understand what's going on in the in this amazing landscape. Vermont is an amazing landscape. Absolutely amazing. Did you know you would be doing this, like when you were studying in college? Well, what I ended up doing was, I was in my undergraduate years, I did biology and geology. <laughs> Came to UVM to do graduate work, to do biogeography. I was going to put them together and look at biological patterns and how they relate to the geology and everything else. So it's looking at, I got really interested in second growth forests, which we have a lot of in Vermont, right? Vermont was almost all deforested and now it's almost all forested again. So there's this huge right, percentage of the, of the landscape that is second growth forest. 
So, you know, I learned how to use all the tools the foresters use and the ecologists use and measure the trees and I did all of that stuff. I was making these maps. And you start to put all the data down on the maps. And I realized that the forest type would change like where the stone wall was. And then it would be in this block, this rectangular block. And then you'd get to the stone wall and it would change to be another forest type, right? <laughs> and I finally realized after doing that for a while and looking at these patterns, it's like a patchwork kind of quilt type pattern. I was like, you know what? To understand, at that point it was the 20th century, to understand the 20th century forest patterns, I had to understand 19th century farming patterns. I had to understand 19th century farming patterns. It was like, what? <laughs> what? But the wonderful thing about geography is, is that there, there are people in the department who looked at all of the cultural features as well. So even though my background had been mostly in the natural sciences, I had incredible support to pull in all of that other stuff. And that got me going. So I ended up writing about the stone wall patterns and how they related to the forest patterns from oh, my master's thesis. So interesting. And then it's evolved from there. I started with the rural landscape patterns and then realized there was all this village landscape patterns that went with it, then the whole town, and it sort of went from there. But it started out looking at second growth forest patterns wow. and stone walls. Oh, that's fascinating. You can learn more about Jane by visiting her website, janedorney.com. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find more stories, podcast episodes, and event listings on my website, happyvermont.com. To help support Happy Vermont, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or sign up to become a Patreon member. You can also email me at hello at happyvermont.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.